<coughs> at Memorial Hermann. Hermann uh, Hospital has had a functioning ethics committee um, for a very long time, um, since the early 80s, 1983. One of the first in the country to have um, a really uh, uh, formative ethics committee functioning. Um, and for those of you who haven't read it yet, there's a book written about the committee, written um, called uh, First Do No Harm, which is still used as a textbook in some schools and is still in print, and people are still reading and learning from it. What um, uh, the Ethics Committee can do is to solve problems or attempt to solve problems um, whenever they arise and um, whenever they are perceived by whomever in the hospital perceives them. Um, the futility review process, on the other hand, is a different thing. Um, it is not the ethics committee who does the futility reviews. The, util the ethics committee consultations are consultations. They are consultative and advisory only. In putting together the futility review process, we were very careful not to touch the structure of the ethics committee as an advisory committee serving in a consultative role. We put together the concept of futility review in another frame completely. And only the physician of record, the attending physician of record, who is where the buck stops, is allowed to call a futility review. Um, the physician or his designee has to be there to explain the review process and uh, give paperwork and information to the family. Social workers, chaplains, somebody is designated as the liaison to help the family deal with this process, to explain to them what's going on, to funnel information with them, to help them through the process. Our futility review process took the law and reinforced it with a number of extra safeguards for patients. And we structured this committee in order that the review process should be fair and balanced and unbiased. The committee is made up ad hoc. And the appointments approved by the chief medical officer and the chief nursing officer. The committee consists of seven people, three nurses and four physicians who are experts in the field and who have no contact with the case, who have no uh, current involvement in the case. It's only important that they are smart, fair, and unbiased, and they have knowledge of the field. The chair is a member of the Ethics Committee. And the chair of the committee um, is usually, it, it reason, it, it's, he, has, he or she has to be a member of the Ethics Committee, is that somebody has to know all the rules and regulations to do things. Um, the meeting is usually held with the invitation of the family members and people involved in the case, the physician or his designate and all the consultants that are pertinent to explain all of the medical facts, within the meeting structure itself, anybody who is pertinent to the case is invited. 
the committee members are charged to evaluate the care and determine whether or not the treatment requested is really appropriate or inappropriate. The experts who are on the committee go delve into the actual medical facts of the case and they determine what the medical, what the medical facts are, what the, what, the, what the situation of the patient is, what the treatment being requested is, uh, and they do so in all seriousness um, uh, with, with um, an unbiased approach. It's closed uh, because that means that anybody can't walk in off the street and watch. We don't have a, 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 an auditorium or a theater for people to look through. People participate at the discretion of the chair. But the family members and people involved in the case are always invited and, encar and, and encouraged to attend. Um, that's the 48-hour notice. Usually it's more than that, but no meeting will be held unless there has been at least 48 hours written notice given to the family members to allow them to come to the meeting. The focus of the discussion is very different from an ethics consultation process. It, it focuses on the medical facts of the case and the appropriateness of the medical treatment. So it's not an ethics consult. It's not judging what would the patient would uh, have wanted because we already know that the request for treatment even if it came from the patient is being is being judged to be either appropriate or not appropriate so it's very different from an ethics consult in our structure the vote has to be unanimous among those seven committee members we discuss the case present the facts Everybody else leaves except those seven committee members. And then in closed session, the seven committee members discuss the issues, determine whether or not to support or not support the physician. And then the chair writes a note in the chart explaining the case and the judgment and goes to the family members or the patient and explains to them in person what the committee has decided gives them a copy of the, of the written note that explains things. And the hospital provides a liaison to help them in the event that they wish to take advantage of the 10-day waiting period provided by the law and transfer the patient. So that's how the, the thing works. They have 10 days in which, if they still want to, uh, continue care. They, they and the hospital will try to help them find another facility and another physician who can accept care. By our policies, that has to be a, a facility outside of the Memorial Hermann system because we've already determined it inappropriate. Um, and once that happens, um, we will facilitate the transfer. The hospital pays for the transfer. A hospital will pay for an outside consultant to come in if they ask for one, uh, for a second opinion. Uh, we do everything we can. <coughs> since, since the uh, law was enacted uh, at the end of uh, 1999 and then revised in 2003, uh, we've had 33 cases um, that we've actually brought in. Um, the, always 
the futility review process was, has been used as a, as a last resort. There always are multiple meetings in, in, that occur before this happens in order to avoid this. In 31 of these cases, 94% the patients were in one of our intensive care units. So they're usually critically ill and dying. 97%, all but one of the patients, lacked capacity. There was one patient who was still able to judge. None of the patients had advanced directives, because that would have solved the problem. Um, all but one of the patients had no CPR orders written in the chart prior to this coming up. It had already been determined that, that CPR was in a, it would, would be inappropriate. And formal ethics consults were held in nine of the cases, 27% before the futility review. Uh, we have now determined that we're going to do that all the time. Most of the pa patients were middle-aged to elderly, but we have a large number of pediatrics cases in our, from our children's hospital. Um, Two-thirds of the patients were women. Uh, or female, since there were some ch children. Most of the patients had some sort of, sort of serious brain injury. Uh, nine had anoxic brain injury. Six had traumatic either brain or spinal cord injury. Um, six had hemorrhagic stroke. And three had ischemic stroke. So the vast majority had serious brain disease. Um, four patients had malignant neoplasia. Um, three had genetic anomalies that were fatal. One um, had uh, underlying hydrocephalus and brain dysfunction, and one had very severe end-stage Alzheimer's disease. The uh, event which led to withdrawal of support really, um, in most cases, was unexpected. Two-thirds of the cases was a sudden event where tertiary care uh, tri trauma hospital, so that's... The question, the interventions in question, in most cases, re, uh, um, resolved around life-sustaining treatment, all life-sustaining treatment, 25 of the cases. In six of the cases, it was just ventilatory support, and that's all that was being questioned. In one case, it was the administration of blood and blood products. And in one, ca one case, it was a jejunostomy, the appropriateness of putting in a jejunostomy. Um, eight had private insurance, eight had Medicare, nine had Medicaid, only seven were self-paid, and one, this was our first case, uh, had full payment from a foreign government. This is not about money, it's not about uh, lack of insurance, it's about the right thing to do for our patients. The reasons for the treatment, the request or demand for inappropriate treatment, are the following. In nine cases, there was a surrogate that was just overwhelmed and couldn't make a decision. It's too much for me. Don't ask for me, don't ask me to say yes. Another nine thought that the patient was going to improve. A miracle has happened. I don't believe you doctors, you always say that. He's going to get better. Another nine just couldn't say yes. They just can't, can't, they, 
they see everything, they understand it's bad, but I just can't give permission to stop treatment. Another four, it was a religious belief, a belief in a miracle. God is not allowed to do, God will, will save this patient. You're not allowed to play God. In two cases, um, they refused to accept the whole concept of impending death. They just said, no, you're wrong. Patient's not gonna die. Patient's gonna get better. The committee agreed with the physician that treatment was medically inappropriate in 29 cases, 88%. And the committee disagreed in four cases, or 12%. So 12% of our cases, the committee said, doctor, you're wrong. This is not really inappropriate. This is not really futile care or whatever the reason. Um, and remember, you have to be unanimous. Um, the outcomes, finally. 42% of the patients died after life support, support was withdrawn after 10 days. So in, in, in 14 of these 33 cases, we went the entire 10 days, uh, transfer was not done, and after the 10 days, life support was withdrawn and the patients expired. 21%, seven of these cases, the patient died during the 10-day waiting period with all care being maintained. That's one of the other things that I forgot to mention. When the committee votes to support the, the, the request of the physician, the 10-day waiting period imp, imp, uh, implies that all care at the current standard of care be maintained. So ventilatory support, pressors, everything that's being maintained at that time continues to be maintained. But in seven of those cases, despite that, the patient still died. And the reason was, as the physician said, these patients are dying. There's nothing we shouldn't be doing anymore. They're going to die. And in fact, they did. But not because we stopped care or lessened care, in spite of everything we were doing. Another three cases expired during the waiting period. But because the family during that 10-day period said, you know, I think we understand. You're right go ahead and withdraw care. This is awful. So that happened three times. Uh, two times the, the patient, patients were transferred to another facility that was willing to accept the care. In one of those, the patient went on to die uh, soon after, and one is still surviving. Um, in, two patients, in two cases, the patients were discharged to home in one, um, the patient expired with the court decision pending. Um, one case uh, expired two weeks after the futility review um, and uh, life-sustaining treatment was stopped at that time. Two not 10 days later, but two weeks after the review. In one case, the patient was expired, uh, expired a full month after the review. In both of these last two cases, um, the, the committee had disagreed with the physician. Remember, there's four cases, the, and so care was not withdrawn, but the patient eventually died. One two weeks later, one a month later. One patient was discharged AMA, and one case is still pending uh, because the outcome is still in question. Um, what we're talking about here is of fundamental importance to the basic integrity of medical practice. And the challenges that are coming will determine how you are able to practice and how you are able to take care of your patients in the future.
Now, our next speaker, Greg Hooser, who was really responsible for the fact that we have this law, that it is still here, and that hopefully it will be defended, um, and knows how to go about affecting what you people really need, and that's the protection of the integrity of medical care. 